And I thought, well, surely there's a book about this someplace. Looked it up, and there was none. And so I, I said, well, I, I'm, I'm going to write this story. Welcome to this special edition of the Do Some Damage podcast, brought to you by DoSomeDamage.com. This is Steve Weddle. I had the privilege to speak with Bill Schaefer about his new book, The Scandalous Hamiltons, Gilded Age Grifter, A Founding Father's Disgraced Descendant, and A Trial at the Dawn of Tabloid Journalism. Bill and I talked about New York City architects Warren and Whitmore and how they impacted uh, this story, tabloid journalism at the end of the 19th century. Uh, we talked about what got cut from his book. Uh, we also talked about how he researched Jackson Hole from his Upper West Side apartment and what he learned about rainbow trout. The book was fabulous. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, set in the 1890s, has to do with uh, Ray Hamilton, descendant of Alexander Hamilton has to do with a a woman uh, to whom he was married and with whom he thought he had a child. Uh, Sort of starts picking up when she attempts to kill their nurse. Uh, It's just fabulous. It ends up uh, with with his uh, uh, being found dead in a river in Jackson Hole. It's just, it's a a fabulous story. And uh, I I had a great, great time reading it. And, just an even better time speaking to Bill about it. So uh, without further ado, here's the interview. Uh, To find out more, visit DoSomeDamage.com. One other thing I should mention is that I was in the basement of a hotel doing the interview. Bill was in his apartment in New York City. So if you hear any background noise, that is likely all my fault. One of the things that I thought was, you know, fascinating about this book in particular is that it seemed to have, you seem to have, you know, about a dozen different, stories, (laughs) stories, <laughs> books, like what you think that one court case is ending and we're moving on to something else and right. then, then this happens and then another court case. And, the, you know, I, I, you know, I was reading the, you know, the write-up about the book and it was talking about, you know, buying a baby. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's got to be interesting and fun and that sort of thing. I did not know that it involved purchasing, what, four babies? Yeah. Three, four? Four. That was, yeah, that's, uh, that, was, that was more babies than I thought were going to be purchased. Yeah, it's it's, um, it's it's a crazy. There, there's so many things going on. How in the world did you keep all of it straight? You know, in terms of a kind of a narrative through point, was it just chronology, or or how did you manage all that? Yeah, uh, yeah. It was basically uh, the short answer is chronology. T- to back up just a sec, I'll give you a kind of the roots of of how how the book came to be. Um, you know, my wife and I, uh, we met in New York you know, 30-plus years ago, bought a house in Connecticut and raised our daughter, and we were empty nesters, and we decided to take an apartment back in the city, right? And so uh, this was in November of 2017, and uh, our apartment's here on the Upper West Side, and I was out, you know, kind of... uh, Actually, moving my parking my car on a, a bitterly cold January night, two months later, and I found a parking spot right in front of what I came to realize was the Hamilton Fountain. And I got out of the car, and it—I have to say—it kind of stopped me. I said, "This is a you know to myself, this is a beautiful fountain. This looks like something you would see at Grand Central Terminal." And so I quickly read the Parks Department plaque, right? And, I mean, it was freezing. 
said, you know, given to the city, Robert Ray Hamilton, great-grandson of Alexander Hamilton, uh, was involved in some kind of scandal, and the fountain was designed by Warren and Wetmore, which made me go, aha, because Warren and Wetmore is one of the, the, the public kind of face architecture firm of Grand Central. Mm-hmm. And I do uh, historical, architectural, and design research for other authors and design firms, design consultancies, things like that. And so I was walking the, the several blocks home uh, briskly because it was freezing, thinking, why in the world is Warren and Wetmore, who's a one of the preeminent, you know, uh, most prestigious design firms, uh, architecture firms in the early 20th century, I... I I thought, why are they designing this relatively small project, it's only 11 feet tall, uh, in this obscure sort of corner of 76th Street and Riverside Drive in Manhattan? And so when I got home, I I just, it was kind of a top of mind, and so I just kind of started doing a few Google searches, and I was really coming at it from sort of an architectural history point of view. I wanted to know really what the Warren and Wetmore story was uh, in regards to all of this. You know, a sort of simple uh, Google search or two produced about maybe 10 or 15 sort of blog entries or articles, pretty short articles about Robert Ray Hamilton and this scandal. They weren't consistent with each other, and, you know, in retrospect, some of them weren't very factually true, but I thought, hmm, this is kind of an odd story. Um, and so I wanted to dig a little further, and, and I thought, well, surely there's a book about this someplace. Looked it up, and there was none. And so I, I said, well, I, I'm, I'm going to write this story. Um, and so that's that's really what I how it came about. I, I've been telling people, you know, I didn't, I didn't really find the story. The story kind of found me, you know. And so, right. I, I just, I just thought it was a interesting, uh, interesting. My first, what was my first kind of thought about it, and then the more I started digging and started really getting into the research, it was like, well, wait, this this can't be true. This this didn't really happen. And then the farther I would dig. It was like, wow, it did happen, and all of these characters involved in it, you know, uh, Elihu Root, who was the, you know, attorney for the family, ended up being Secretary of War and Secretary of State under Teddy Roosevelt, ended up winning the Nobel Prize, you know, Dr. Carlos McDonald was the co-inventor with Edison of the electric chair. It was just sort of one thing after another, and... So, uh, you know, to, to to sort of answer your, your your original question, I don't mean to just be going on and on. Um, it was it was a matter of just kind of r- trying to round up this herd of sort of information and get it all in in one pen, so to speak, and then start sorting it out. And because there were so many pieces to it, I thought, okay, let me. Just for my own clarity, let me organize this chronologically, and then when I really started getting into the writing of the book, that ended up making the most sense to tell the story in, in a in a way that would be 
um, as clear as I could make it. So, at the, at the base of it, the heart of it, when you when you were pitching it, I guess, when you were you know we were to sell the book to begin with or explain to people what the book was, how how do you see what the book is? How do you describe the book? Explain the book. Um, it's a um, um, it, it, it's a little bit of a hard question to answer. I, I'll t- I know. I'll, That's why I'm and, asking. And I'll, I'll tell you why is that it's my first book, right? So um, I was trying to figure out, you know, what you need to do to put together a proposal, try to get an agent, all of that kind of stuff, and everybody wants an elevator pitch. Um, you know, describe it in, in you know, two sentences. And I found that very uh, hard to do, only because there's a number of components to it that that made it hard for me to to sort of summarize so so succinctly. I, I think it, what what ended up sort of fascinating me the most, though, was the fact that it was. Um, what we would know today is a celebrity scandal and the way it played out in the media and um, the, the story of Gilded Age haves and have-nots, Ray being the have, Eva the have-not, their relationship and how that played out in the newspapers was sort of, the, the for me, the most uh, interesting or fascinating part. So I was trying to kind of put it together from that point of view, but uh, I, I have to admit, I, I struggled with that a little bit, that sort of sure. two-sentence summary. Yeah, well, I, I guess it's a, it's a I, I don't know if I want to say the heart of it, but maybe, uh, you know, on the edge of it, if you're trying to just briefly describe it, it's, it's Ray Hamilton, who's a descendant of the Hamilton family, marries a woman, and then she uh, pretends that they had a child, there are court cases, soon enough he ends up dead, and None. It's just. It's just. The, it's the most amazing sort of conflagration. You say it's like a celebrity scandal, but it's like it's like a dozen different scandals, one on top of the other. Yeah. And in some ways, they kind of tie together, and in somehow, it's, I mean, because you know, you look at his death out in you know in the wild west, right. know, Jackson Hole, um, in, you know, in a in a river, I suppose, or on the edge of a river, and yeah. the whole the whole question of because yeah, because when you're coming to the book. And it's you know you start out as a reader you know I mean you wrote it uh, I assume you've read parts of it but, but you, <laughs> you know you knew what was coming up as a reader who didn't know what was coming up you know I expect you know in, in reading the blurbs and things like that that the that the murder I was waiting okay how did how how is Eva going to catch a train <laughs> to Jackson Hole did she hire somebody she couldn't have hired somebody and of course you deal with some of this stuff in there and I don't want to give too much away about what right. was possible or what wasn't possible and that sort of thing but it's, it was just I mean honest to goodness it was just it was just an amazing one thing after another and it's the sort of you know they they talk, you know you talk about books that are unputdownable but you know you, you're you're always in the middle of some scandal. That's leading to the next sort of scandal. It's just—it's just an amazing sort of thing. One one question that I kept having, I suppose, is why don't more people know about this? It, it's a—I um, um, think that it's just one of those stories that's been kind of uh, layered over and has gone down into the sort of sediment of of history. And I, one of the things that that one possible answer for that, and, and this is just 
maybe a, a feeling more than than I could support with evidence is that I write in the book that the Hamilton family was kind of akin to the to the the Hamilton name at that time was kind of akin to to the Kennedy name today in that we are now 60 years after Dallas right but if you hear the Kennedy name in the news for a lot of people their ears kind of perk up what are the Kennedys up to and that feeling was still very much um uh in play with the Hamiltons it was 80 some years after uh, the duel in Weehawken, but the Hamilton family, and there were a lot of them, um, were New York society figures. They were very successful people. Their names were in the newspaper a lot for uh, good deeds, philanthropic efforts. Ray's father was a Civil War general, wrote a book on the history of the U.S. flag, very patriotic guy. So they were very plugged in, and as I write yeah, in the well, book... Ray was you know, an assemblyman, right? Yeah, he was a New York State assemblyman, a real estate developer. Um, you know, they were all... Uh, uh, they all lived a life of privilege, basically. And, you know, I write in the book that when Ray left this $10,000 to the city for the fountain, the family basically went to the city and said, listen, we don't want the money, keep it. Spend it however you want. Whatever you do, don't build a fountain with Ray Hamilton's name on it. And, in fact, the Times, you know, headlined their article about him at at that point as uh, it was headlined, Let Him Be Forgotten. And that was the family sentiment. And so I think, you, you know, because of their influence, particularly in New York, I think a lot of of – all of those misdeeds and all, the whole story was kind of uh, intentionally buried, not buried, but but let's just move on. You know, let's let's not talk about it. Let's right. not um, uh, keep it alive. And so I think it it went away fairly quickly when the fountain was dedicated in 1906. You know, at that time, if you were donating something like that to the city there was a ribbon cutting newspapers were there you know people gave speeches things like that none of that happened with the fountain uh, i couldn't find in two and a half years of research anything that marks the dedication ceremony of it even the new york city uh, parks department like their annual reports it, it was a one line you know a fountain opened at 76 and riverside drive um, and that was it. So I think there was an effort early on from people in the family, perhaps. I don't know that for sure, so I, I want to be careful saying I, you know, that that they intentionally did it. I I have no evidence about that, and, and wouldn't want that to be conjecture publicly on my part. But that's sure. what I suspect is that very early, it, everybody kind of connected to it, wanted it to just kind of go away as quickly as possible. So I think it quickly got kind of, you know, <laughs> filled with other history at the time on top of it and has kind of settled down into, uh, you know, the deeper levels. Um, yeah, well, they're for, they're for a time when it was breaking. Yeah, well, well I'm, sure, I'm sure they thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for bringing that back up. Bill. So, but the, at, the, at the time, you know, the late 80s, early 90s or so, it was in the, uh, in the headlines, as you point out, 
um, in the headlines all the time. And, you know, I, I think that people today, you know, we, we, I guess, you know, up there where you are, you've got the New York Post and we have different sorts of um, newspapers around. But I think tabloid journalism there at the time, the birth of tabloid journalism, was much different. I think that people today uh, don't you know, have, a, have a great appreciation of how different journalism was there. When you were going back to the stories and doing your research, two and a half years, as you said, you, know, you, you must have uh, uh, really gotten an, an awakening into the period pieces and the tabloid journalism back then. Yeah, for sure. And you know, a lot of what, what drove the story was the New York World, which was Joseph Pulitzer's paper, he had bought it several years before, and he really, you know, his mission was to have a newspaper for the common working man, right? It, um, and he loved, or the paper loved, to print stories about, you know, this kind of, this division between the haves and have-nots, and if a rich person, you know, found themselves in a in a, uh, uh, a rough situation for whatever reason, a business failure, a marriage failure, whatever it might be, the world didn't hesitate to play that up as a way of saying, you know, see, even even wealthy people for everything in, in, that they have in life, you know, they can get their comeuppance too. And so all of the, you know, there were 19 daily newspapers, English language daily newspapers in New York at the time. So just like now with cable news and Twitter, you know, you you got to have content to um, uh, keep driving those things. And the world really was um, uh, at the forefront um, of it, and because they were driving it so hard, all the other newspapers uh, needed to drive it too. And so, um, the Times, the Tribune, the Herald, uh, the New York Sun—you know, those were with the world. The World was the, the biggest circulation uh, paper in, in New York at the time. Uh, but all of those kind of those five biggest ones—they they played it up every day and. You know, Eva was a very uh, compelling figure from a from a tabloid journalism point of view. She reveled in attention. Her courtroom appearances were, you know, like Gloria Swanson, you know, sweeping onto a movie set. She was always, you know, the way she was dressed was always meticulously described. Her utterances, her mannerisms, uh, you know, her moods. So it was... You know, it was it was a story that was just easily told by the newspapers and really lapped up by the consuming public. It wouldn't have kept commanding such attention in full columns on page one of newspapers. Sometimes those articles continued into the interior pages. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have kept happening if there was not this sort of compelling element to it and. And she was a lot of uh, what compelled it. So. so so, going through those newspapers and the journalism, I'm going to guess you probably came up with, I don't know, two dozen other stories that you want to follow up on now that this book is done, right? <laughs> yeah, there, there are definitely some out there. You know, I had to sometimes, you know, snap myself back into focus because you're going through these newspapers. And, and obviously this is a wild story, but – 
it wasn't the only one for sure um and so i've i've made notes about all of them that's for sure <laughs> yeah yeah not only was it not the only story but you know the hamiltons of course weren't the only important family involved you mentioned a couple of them earlier uh, but you know there there are a ton of of cameos in this one in turn you know Ray's friends Ray Hamilton's friends of course right. um, but also also other you know Nellie Bly makes an appearance yeah yeah um, that was uh that was one of those uh moments you know in the research where I'm going through these newspaper articles and I knew a little bit about Nellie Bly you know I wasn't certainly not an expert on her I was like wow there's a Nellie Bly scored an interview with with Eva so you know how did that come about? What's the story there? And finding the article and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that was, Nellie Bly was, you know, quite famous and um, uh, very widely read and, and people just paid attention to her, whatever she was writing. And so when she writes, you know, she basically just went down to Trenton State Prison and kept talking to the officials there and, until... You know, I mean, she just wouldn't take no for an answer, and finally was able to talk herself into an interview with Eva. It wasn't prearranged, anything like that. And uh, once uh, once it started, Eva, you know, uh, um, spilled her guts to her. Now, spilled her guts in typical Eva Eva fashion, which was part fact, part fiction, and whatever the whatever the combination of, of of elements that she told Nellie Bly was typical Eva, you know. She she told stories for whatever purposes she needed to tell them, whether they were true or partially true or complete fabrications. She was just doing what she felt she needed to do to get by. And yeah, that was she, yeah. her she philosophy did that, just... from the beginning. Yeah, and she did that not just with Nellie Bly, but also on the stand. I mean, when she yeah. was in court for for attempted murder, uh, you know, she would make up whatever seemed the best at the time. Yeah. Um, until sure. the until that until she had to get to her mother's funeral, and then she sort of had a, a bit of a change. Yeah. Um, in yeah. Her, yeah. That 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 was a seemed like an interesting little turning point. How did you how did you feel about Eva through there? The more you learned, did, did what you think about her change? Because I know that you know. From a reader's point of view, you start to kind of, you know, sometimes you're sympathizing with her, sometimes you're hating her. You know, it's, yeah. it's very, she's a very interesting character. Yeah, I, you know, it's, um, I've, been, I've been asked about that, or, or people have been commenting. I've been doing some events and things like that, and when we get to the Q&A periods, people, women in particular, want to talk about her. You know, on one hand, she, what she did was, you know, pretty despicable by by all accounts, but there's a funny sort of empathy almost that some people have with her, and I I, I have to admit that, you know, I felt that from time to time. I went back and forth about that as I was writing it because she's a, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, there's this confidence, almost arrogance about her, but there's also this desperation, you know, women at that time didn't have a lot of opportunities, um, particularly women that were that basically had no education or no sort of social standing. And I, you know, on one hand, she 
she did what she felt she needed to do to better her lot in life. Um, she took some pretty uh, uh, awful way routes to try to get there, but um, you know that was, I think, what was underlying her motivation. You know, she just. I would think if you were born in those circumstances um, and you wanted to get out of them, you kind of did what you had to do to get out of it. So it's a very sort of funny, and and people feel much the same as as you do about it. You, you, on one hand, you you don't like her very much at all. You, you, You keep thinking she's really awful. On the other hand, it, there is some sort of sympathy or, or empathy for that people have been telling me, so, and, I, and I understand that. Yeah, she, she doesn't come across as a, as a, as a villain, despite the fact that she um, I, you know, attempt, uh, attempted, was convicted of attempting to kill somebody, spent some time in prison. Uh, but then, you know, in true, as you would say, even fashion, she sort of turns that around and uh, becomes a playwright and an actress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right? I mean, may or yeah. may not have written the play, right? There was some question about whether she actually wrote that. Um, right. She was certainly billed as the play, right? So, yeah, um, yeah. That, that's, 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 that's the, the oddest and, in a way, funniest part of the book to me is the uh, is that, that play and how it just got, how it was just a total bomb, you know. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, again, back to the beginning of our conversation, I'm, I'm, looking I'm finding all this stuff and at a certain point you find out she was in a play about you know she wrote a play she started right. a play about her and so you keep digging there and it's like that keeps getting nuttier and nuttier so um you know it's it's a um uh there, there are some strange circumstances that occur oh yeah but I mean, it, it I think it's indicative of the entire book you know uh, I, you, you must have had to have had some sort of a whiteboard to just kind of just brainstorming all these different sections of it. Cause it's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it as I said, it sort of follows along basically chronologically, but what parts get inserted within those sort of major arcs of the story and how it all fits together, um, that, you know, I... I I mean, I, I just went back and forth for over a year. You know, I'd write a section, and and it's like, well, I'm not sure if that quite fits right in there. Um, but if I move it, how do I segue to it and things like that? Sure. So sure. eventually, were there, were, yeah. sort of all came together. Yeah, were there? Um, uh, well, it does. I mean, it's smooth. It doesn't. It, it certainly doesn't feel you know pieced together. It seems like one narrative going through, but. Yeah, I wonder, knowing that there were all all these sorts of things going on, you know, were there were there some interesting stories that you had to cut from the book? Um, there were not not necessarily stories, but um, sort of historical perspectives that kind of fit with within it. Like I, I could have, um, you know, Ray was involved in. And for instance, he was the Republican Party chairman in New York, and what a t- at a time in New York when Republicans weren't uh, a majority party by any sense, it was still very much the Tammany Hall Democratic machine. And so there was, 
you know, Ray funded the the clubhouse and tried to organize uh, Republican candidates, you know, within the city and things like that, which in the end, I just start, I just felt that it started taking me too far away from the crux of the story. Right, right. Um, and, um, you know, there was, there was, uh, you know, Joseph Pulitzer's story is pretty interesting. You know, he starts working at a newspaper and, and buys the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and sells that because he wants to come to New York. And, and you know, there's a, there's a Pulitzer backstory that, but I started thinking, you know, I think people who are interested in Pulitzer probably know that already. And there are also other places where you can find out a much more in-depth version of that story. So, you know, you start kind of taking some of that out. So uh, the bit about baby farming, uh, there was a a bunch of research about that. And, you know, um, how much – I didn't want to get – too deep into that whole area of, of baby farming because that that's its own sort of rabbit hole. So how can I explain that this practice exists, you know, give a sort of tangible example of it, but not make it a book about baby farming? And at the end, you know, when I talk about the Hamilton Fountain and its location on the Upper West Side, I had a whole sort of section about the development of the Upper West Side of New York and how it kind of sprang to life in the 1890s and around the turn of the century. And that started getting a little bit, I thought, into sort of urban history. And I I had to keep asking myself, are these parts, not just those, but some others as well, are they advancing the story and keeping the story of Ray and Eva clear, or are they just sidebars that might be of interest to me, but don't necessarily advance the story? And so that's yeah, where or, I had yeah. had to make sure. the decisions or, to stay or go, you know. Yeah, or, or sidebars that you could turn into magazine articles elsewhere to yeah. promote the book, right? <laughs> yeah, sure, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I I have a lot of that, but I have to. Um, uh, have some self-discipline there to, uh, um, yeah, to tell myself, you know, you got to make a hard decision here. However much I thought it was, you know, a part might be well-written or informative or people might want to learn that. If it wasn't advancing the story, in the end, I kept it out. Yeah, well, you know, as I've said a number of times, I think the story just, just keeps advancing and keeps building on, you know, it's like, the little uh, 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 puzzle things that you fold back and forth with your fingers. And yeah. Little, <laughs> and I, yeah. I mean, it's just that sort of thing. It's, it's amazing, just folding in on itself. And it's, it, right. it, it just keeps on moving. The, the, uh, now, her, just, you know, before, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I don't want to get, all, you know, get through with this without mentioning Eva's first, uh, I guess, common-law husband and that whole family yeah. uh, and, and her, her uh, what she called a granny or whatever yeah, the guy's mother. Yeah, that was the, her nickname. The, was Josh Mann and his mother Anna Swinton. Yeah, they were they were an interesting couple as well. Yeah, and I wish I could have. Um, uh, I found about as much of them as I could. Um, you know, after after Eva's settlement with the family, 
they kind of go away. You don't. I, I couldn't find them mentioned in any newspapers any longer. I couldn't find. I couldn't even find death records of them. It wouldn't surprise me, you know, because Eva was buried in a pauper's grave, basically. Um, and the only reason that was in the newspaper was because she was Eva, right? And I suspect maybe the same thing might have happened to Josh and his mother. I don't think they had, you know, uh, probably great endings in their life. But, you know, for everything that was discussed about them while everything was going on with Eva, once that ended, they, you know, went back into anonymity. So, uh, well, yeah, but, as you mentioned... You mentioned about Eva, you know, how easy it was to kind of create your own identity. You know, you can move to a new place and change your name. So, you know, right. I guess if, if you can't follow through with those folks, there's there's no telling. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that was the other, you know, when you were asking about parts that, that might have been left out. I was, I was fascinated by the ease in which people would, could change their names, change their identities, make up stories about themselves and just move on with their life. And, you, you know, you come to realize that there weren't photo IDs, there weren't social security numbers, there weren't background checks. You, you know, you were who you said you were, and that was taken at your word and unless proven otherwise. So that was a revelation to me. Yeah, and the uh, I, I found it interesting that the uh, the nurse uh, who was stabbed ended yeah. up uh, sort of on the stage afterwards, giving her own little uh, uh, talk about. I mean, that's that's kind of an interesting little side story too. You know what? Yeah, happened to absolutely, her, absolutely. And those dime museums. I mean, they were basically freak shows. And again, I had more research about that. And it's also next to the baby farming, kind of the saddest part of the research because it's people with physical deformities basically that you know um have no way of kind of regularly getting through life who um are paid money to perform or exhibit themselves and that was in many ways the only money that they could earn so those dime museums were uh and there was a ton of them you know i mean what we might think today is is manipulation and taking advantage and 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 sad i mean it was just it was entertainment at that time so um and Marianne Donnelly said you know that she didn't really feel great doing it, but they were paying her hundred and fifty bucks a week, and she's a nurse now that is out of work, and nobody's quite going to hire her again as a baby nurse, right so Right. Uh, it was a way for her to make money. You also, we do work our way out west. So you're talking about how things were in New York City in terms right. of, uh, you know, the, the uh, tabloid journalism, the, the museum, you know, the uh, uh, dime museums, all the different things in New York. But the, that's a whole different world that I guess you had to research and, and describe and that sort of thing. So yeah. uh, you, you, you don't have the New York newspapers to rely on there, right? And researching Correct. what Jackson Hole was like in 1890. So how did that yeah. happen? Yeah. And a couple of things. One, I, I, early on I got in touch with the Jackson Hole Historical Society uh, and Museum there, and they were very helpful in providing photographs of the area at that time. Um, a professor at the University of Wyoming wrote a little book um, that was 
kind of between a pamphlet and a book uh, that I was able to find, which outlined a lot of that history and uh, or gave some some details about it. And then I had the good fortune. I, I actually grew up in Cincinnati, and one of my best buddies there, um, when we graduated from college, I basically came to New York, and he took a summer job with uh, uh, the Park Service as a ranger in Grand Teton National Park. And basically never left so i'd been i've been out there a number of times to visit him and so i knew kind of the physical beauty of the area and all of that stuff and combined with and also the university of wyoming uh has what they call the american heritage center which has some historical documents about settlements and people there and things like that so I kind of pieced all of that together, and actually when I had the manuscript, I sent it to my friend um, because I was describing, you know, the flora and fauna, and I said, can you just take a look at this and tell me if I'm saying anything that is, you know, not quite right, or somebody, a, a local or a resident out there would say, would go, aha, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, because I, I didn't want to, I wanted the the book to be true, you know, and sure. so for instance, I I say that Ray arrived in Jackson Hole in June of 1890, and the valley floor was you know uh, alive with the electric red blooms of Indian paintbrush flowers because I remember that from being out there in in like the summer months to see him, right. and he wrote back to say. Indian paintbrushes don't bloom until July. If he arrived in June, he would have seen, you know, balsam arrowroot flowers, which are yellow. So, you know, I changed that. <laughs> I I said, you know, Ray was an avid fisherman. He could have found cutthroat trout or rainbow trout or mountain whitefish. And he said, you know, rainbow trout aren't aren't native to the Snake River in this stretch. They were introduced into the ecosystem in the 1930s so when ray was here he wouldn't have seen rainbow trout so some oh, things nice. like that That's good catch which were great because it'll it you know i i felt a little sure on my pins you know so to speak that that absolutely uh i wasn't saying something uh that was out of bounds so it was a combination of all of that and just trying to double check and and make sure that you know, looking at old railroad maps, um, yeah. you know, I was I was able to find all these court records, and in some of those court records, people detail, his buddies detail the trains they took to go out there and things like that. So I was able to double-check that against maps and, you know, and read about how you got from Idaho to into Jackson Hole and the oh, 1890s. Oh, that was, yeah, that was fascinating. You know? And yeah. how, how, you got, how you got your things shipped to you. Yeah. You know, and th this yeah. had to go over to Utah, and if you wanted to uh, uh, hit the uh, the telegraph wire, you had yeah. to ride a couple, of, a couple of days up there. Right, and then of course, right. The guy, am I remembering this right? The guy who who went to the telegraph wire to, to send word back about uh, what had happened to Ray, um, mm -hmm. he had some, he, he was tied into the telegraph uh, family. Uh, yeah, yeah, his uh, his his father was the president of Western Union. Uh, <laughs> his, fa his father was Norvin Green, um, and 
Dr. Green, who was one of the people who found his body, was um, kind of a non-practicing doctor, was a big uh, outdoorsman, and so he knew that the nearest telegraph office was in Helena, Montana, which, so again, back to your question, all right, how long did it take to get from Jackson Hole to Helena by horseback in the 1890s, you know, and so you able to find that and um you know it's not it's not the first line in a google search but it's findable and right, so right. um because you say when he took off to go you know from jackson hole to helena the first question you or i or anybody with a curiosity would ask is like well how the hell long is that going to take you know and so if i'm going to write about that i have to answer that question you know before i can get much further with the story you know sure. so yeah, well, it was you know, you know, you really felt as a reader, you really felt like you were there uh, out west. You felt like you were there in New York. So, you know, just you know, to, I'm to glad. wrap I'm, up, I'm I thought that it worked really well. Oh, thank you. I'm 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 happy to hear that. I, um, uh, thanks. Yeah, well, as you know, as as we wrap up, is there anything else that uh, you know that I forgot to ask you that you'd like for a potential reading? No, I I know? think that uh, I think that you've you've definitely covered the main points, and it's a pretty thorough dissection of the book. So. I really appreciate you taking the time to read it and study it and 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 oh, absolutely! Um, you know, have this conversation. I, I greatly well, it was appreciate an ab- it. Absolute pleasure. Once again, the book is called "The Scandalous Hamiltons." Thanks to Bill Schaefer for being my guest on the Do Some Damage podcast. To find out more, visit DoSomeDamage.com. Wait, what just happened here?